So my name is Daniel Zoga. I'm a local realtor here in Central Florida. Been here about five years now. Moved from Philadelphia, worked in a lot of different industries. I was explaining to you earlier from law enforcement to banking to real estate. Uh, I'm the type to kind of like, once I conquer a certain industry, move on to the next one. So, and I'm big on doing things that I feel passionate about. So once I lose the passion about something, I move on to the next thing. I think it's a good mindset. I mean, when you bring passion to something, you're gonna work a lot harder in it. Absolutely. When you say conquering an industry, what is the feeling of having conquered an industry to you? Conquering will be kind of performing at your peak, right? So in banking, I won top performer year after year. In law enforcement, I won multiple awards there too with very little bit of help. This was all based on, um, and, I, and I guess in, in the industries that I was in, I wasn't blessed to have like a mentor, so I had to kind of figure it out on my own. I didn't have like a, somebody to kind of guide me through. So to me, conquering is like, okay, what is the best that I could achieve in this particular industry? And did I achieve it? How do I feel about it now that I am there? Do I see myself continuing, maybe climbing the corporate ladder or doing whatever? Or do I now like, ah, oh, this is not really what I imagined and move on to the next thing. So that's will be conquering for me. Now, you would think potentially that going from industry to industry, uh -huh. you would have to overcome some kind of learning curve, obviously. What I've observed whenever I've gone from one industry to another, though, is if you're really observant of the, the places where industries cross over each other, you can really take the lessons from one and bring that in as a superpower and a differentiating factor into the next. Have you experienced moments like that when you've gone from industry to industry? Yeah. Uh, so I would say going from um, entrepreneurship where I was leveraging social media to taking that and now applying it to real estate. I've, that was one industry where I was able to kind of carry over those skills and apply them in a way that other people weren't. So speaking of leveraging social media, uh, you've had some pretty explosive growth with your content marketing lately. Is that something that you kind of picked up from previous ventures and took that into the personal branding side? It did, absolutely. I think uh, there was a lot of trial and error with uh, the other business where we kind of got to learn. Um, and then of course I have a lot of friends and family who are also in that industry. So just observing, being around a lot of different masterminds, listening, applying, seeing what works, what doesn't. Um, I think when I got into the real estate, it, it really um, took me a little bit of time to figure out the right formula, but then eventually I was able to really fine tune it. And that's the thing that's what led to that explosive growth you're referring to. Very cool. So I want to back up for a second and kind of lead into, I guess, the, the path that took you here. If we go back a few industries, because you've, you've almost had five to 10 different <laughs> careers right. in a short amount of time. Yeah. And I think there's a lot of, uh, a lot of depth to ha to be had in each of them from what you've told me. What was, um, out of the Turo, the law enforcement, the banking, which one was earliest? The earliest was probably, uh, well, real estate, right out of college. Okay. So graduated Temple University in 2008, business degree. And my very first job was to become a realtor. But talking about bad timing, right? So when I got into it, I lasted maybe six months. Not because I couldn't generate leads. That was one thing I was always good at, being able to connect with people and generate leads. Uh, but it was more so getting them to closing. My lending at that time got really, really tight because that's what led to the crash to begin with, right? So a lot of banks were under a lot of scrutiny at the time. And uh, I noticed that veterans in that industry were struggling. So I'm like, listen, I got about 100,000 in student loans. I need to find a way to have a steady income to pay for this and for the house that I want to buy, et cetera. So 
that would be my very first industry that I got started was real estate. Then I got into banking. So what was the decision, the decision to go into banking? Was that kind of seeing some of these patterns and feeling like you had some experience that could lend itself to doing well in that industry? Honestly, um, in 08, it, you would just get whatever came your way. I mean, I applied to so many industries, banking, and I'm not proud of it. I mean, you know, when I started college, they told you you're gonna make 50, 60,000 a year with a business degree starting. My first job ever with a college degree was to be a teller at 13 bucks an hour. And I'm sitting next to people who barely finished high school making the same amount. I felt like a complete failure. Uh, you know, nothing wrong with that job itself. It's just what was promised, I felt like we were lied to, right, with the universities. Uh, the, the, the projections they gave you as far as what money you could make, what degrees you should obtain, um, that to me, that felt like a total failure, you know. But I, it was paying the bills. I think unless you really go out of your way to get involved with some of the career development resources within a university, yeah. a lot of times you don't really come out with some of the skills you actually need to get the results as far well, as well, it job. was that but it was also just the cash 22 at that time right so at that time I, I don't i don't know if you were you know looking for work around that time in 2008 when most people graduated um that's when the market crashed so companies were only hiring people that had experience so if you just graduated you had zero experience and you're competing with people who got laid off with 10 20 years of experience and they're settling for jobs that will pay them half of what they were getting paid at the time so I think for the pool of applicants that just graduated, most of them just ended up in whatever they could find. And yeah. most of them were not working in the fields that they graduated for. And you know, I'm a prime example. Yourself included. What were some of the biggest things you learned working in the banking industry? Uh, in the bank industry, I think uh, one of the biggest lessons that I learned there was um, my first year as a teller, then of course I graduated into different roles from managerial to uh, mortgage originating and so forth. Uh, the biggest lesson that I learned there was one time I had somebody come to the, to the branch to, to make a withdrawal. They were going to withdraw about 40000 This guy comes into the branch, sweatpants, pizza stains, right, and his pants and so forth. Uh, that didn't seem very, like, well-kept, well-put-together. Comes to my window, says, my name is so-and-so. I'm looking to withdraw, you know, let's say 100000 I can't remember. It was a large amount, 50000 wow. 100000 I'm looking at him like, yo, okay. What is your account, sir? So I pull up the account and he had a couple million in there. So my very first lesson with that was kind of like not judging people by their appearance, right? Because you imagine somebody who's a millionaire is going to look a certain way. And here comes somebody dressed very normal. Not just normal, but pizza stains and stuff. Yeah, but like, probably like less than normal. And, you know, living the good life. Wow. Zero cares. You probably see all kinds of different examples. Probably see Correct. the opposite, and too. And I saw the complete opposite, right? People portraying a certain... Um, you know, like they're wealthy and they're in the negative every single month, right? So, speaking of wealthy versus non-wealthy uh, people, that's, I guess, on the on the external characteristics side. Across your career, what are some of the the actual persona skills that you've observed of the more wealthy people that you've come in contact with? Uh, I think there's there's two types. All right, so you have people who just became wealthy and people, right, old money, mm -hmm. right? So old money is, dresses very, very um, old money, right? So no big logos, no, none of that, nothing flashy. So even the watches they wear is gonna be something that, it's cost a lot of money, 
but you would only know if you know about watches, mm -hmm. right? So it's not gonna be your gold Roly, or it's not gonna be your, um, you know, any any AP or whatever watch you normally associate with wealth. It's gonna be those watches that are less likely you would notice, you know. Versus new money would yeah, be like very big logos, flashy, Correct. like really big, trying to catch big, attention. Uh, you know, whatever Gucci, Versace, you know, YSL, whatever it is, you know, all those big brands. Any brand that screams luxury, they're gonna have it on them or around them, right? Because they want people to know that, hey, I made it, so. Yeah. I think it's because of that, a lot of people will have a kind of a chip on their shoulder in that case where they, they feel like they have to keep proving it and they yeah. maybe reached that status in the first place because they felt like they had something Correct. to prove. Well, that and I think some of them, especially with today's age, right, with social media and everything else, for some, it's also a lifestyle marketing. It's not even that they actually reached that that wealth. They were just portraying that wealth on social media because they feel like that's what's going to bring them more business, right? Yeah. And for, and for a lot of cases, I've seen it work. But then for other cases, it could fake also, it till you yeah, make it. Yeah. I think Gen Z is getting a lot more savvy to all Absolutely. of that stuff. Yep. I think they're able to pick up on authenticity Correct. in social media in a really interesting and unique way that. Yep other generations aren't. I, I think those people are starting to kind of reach the end <laughs> of that working for them. And I, and I think they're sick and tired of it, right? Because they, they've seen it in so many, so much that they now seek authenticity more than ever before. So kind of going back to social media, you don't have to do all that anymore, right? You don't have to be in a nice car or all these fancy stuff to get people's attention. I think the more authentic your material is and the way you come off, like you actually providing value versus allowing your ego to speak for you. That's what's going to help you grow in today's social media age. I think so too. What are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned about how to effectively provide value? So with every video I create, right? I think early on when I started, like any other realtor, it was probably like, okay, I want to look a certain way. I want to make sure I'm very sharp. Everything is, you know, looks perfect. You, you're looking for perfectionism because you focus in on you rather than the end consumer. The end consumer does not give a shit about you, I'm yeah. sorry. They really don't, right? I mean, I, I could pull up in a, let's say, let's say I pull up in a Lamborghini, right? And I'm sure you heard the saying before, nobody's looking at me, they're looking at the Lamborghini and they envisioning themselves in the Lamborghini, yeah. right? They don't care about you. They might peep just to see who's in that car, but they really don't care. So it's the same thing with the content. Stop focusing so much on you, how you look and what you're saying. No, it's more so how is it being received? And can that person envision what, what you're saying, right? So let's say you're selling a house. Well, selling in a way that maybe you're not even selling them. You, you, you are evoking a certain emotion in your consumer, right? So that's what I'm doing with most of my videos. I have a niche audience of who I'm targeting. I made sure early on that if I'm starting a business, I got to define who my target demographic is. Who am I going after, right? Because I don't want to just go after everybody. You gotta like really niche down on who you're trying to target. And eventually you're gonna get people from all sorts, but you gotta make sure you're clear about that. And that's what I was doing. So for me, it was, for example, people moving to Florida. So if you, if you notice a lot of my content, it's kind of geared towards people moving to Florida because I was one of them. So I totally mm -hmm. understand their pain points and I'm able to kind of sell to that, right? and help them navigate, you know, that, that change coming to Florida from another state. So I like what you've done in the sense too, that rather than just going into 
hey, here's the information you need to know about real estate. Mm-hmm. You've taken this kind of broad approach in a sense where with your content, you inform about Orlando and yeah. things to know in Orlando. And if you think about it, if you kind of zoom uh-huh. out from that for a second, you realize, oh, the, the people that would be working with him need yeah. to know this information, even though it doesn't immediately pertain to real estate. Absolutely. This is information they need to know. And if you become someone's go-to resource for one problem, in a lot of cases, they might come to you for another problem. Correct. I think that's true of all industries. If you can, if you can solve an initial problem mm-hmm. that opens up another problem that you happen to also solve, you can kind of position yourself well in the market. Absolutely, I'm I'm big on being the the connector, the plug, right? So. It doesn't have to be just real estate. I can solve any problem, anything that you're looking for. If I don't know it, I'll find a way to connect you with somebody who does. And that's kind of how I'm coming off with the content I'm trying to make. So originally it was just all about real estate and I started transitioning to other areas and almost highlighting some of my marketing skills, right? So outside of, can I sell real estate? Yeah, but I can sell other things too if I wanted to, right? So I'm now one dimensional. I want to, because I think it's kind of tangential to this, I want to go back to your point about the lead generation, because you said even just starting in your career, you never had an issue with that. Mm-hmm. Why do you think that is? And what do you think are some of the skills that go into that, that allow you to be successful with lead generation? So for me, I, I never uh, came off as a, I, I never came off salesy as a salesperson. For example, um, being a realtor, our license says real estate salesperson. <laughs> really? There. Like that's really your job. And a lot of people, when they first join, they join because of the glitz and glamour of what they think a realtor is. They think, oh, you know, fancy suit or dress and cars and just, you know, I'm getting paid just to maybe show a house or whatever, right? But it's a lot more than that. And very soon they learn that, no, this actually requires a lot of sales. Like you have to really, you know, there's people door sales. knocking, call calling, right? All those things. Uh, when I got into the real estate market, I didn't want to do any of those things. So it never really resonated with who I am. I've always been more the type, I'm going to show you my value and you're going to come to me because of who I am and the value that I've provided. Right. So me going into real estate, I haven't called call to this day. It's been almost two years. I've made, I haven't made one single call call. Right. Wow. Everything has been through either social media, word of mouth, other forms of marketing, but it has never been through me knocking on your door or uh, call calling you or farming the neighborhood, none of, the, none of those measures. And they work, don't get me wrong, for the right people it works. And I think you have to play on your strengths versus your weaknesses. I knew that wasn't one of my strengths. Could I easily learn it and, and apply it? Of course. But I knew what my strengths were. So I'm like, rather than me focusing on fixing that, let me just dial up what I'm already good at. So that's what I started doing. So the the day-to-day activities there, rather than cold calling, what does that kind of look like on a day-to-day basis? What are the, I guess, for lack of better words, the revenue-generating activities? So the revenue-generating activities, obviously, for me, is creating content, following up with all my, like, I get consultations, obviously, from every post that I create. So I will have a week's worth of consultations that I'm following up on, and then, of course, matching them with the right property. So to me, it's not about just finding you any property. Uh, I want to make sure that I'm selling you the right lifestyle. So that's that's what I kind of aim for, you know. And I make sure that I get all my clients the best deal, even if it's costing me money. I've taken clients to deals where I'm losing money just by taking you here, right? Because not every builder pays the same amount. Not every 
list that pays the same. But if I feel like that's the right property for you, and if I'm only gonna make $2,000 versus 10, 15, 20, I'm still gonna show it to you. Yeah. Because I'm in the business of relationships, not transactions. I understand that even though I'm only making $2,000 of this, or I've even had cases where I made nothing out of it, right? I know that by me providing you with the service is going to pay down, you know, pay you know, pay off later in, in time. So, to me, that's very reflective of just seeing the long term game exactly. and the long term strategy. And I think a lot of people in any industry really struggle to see the long term strategy, especially when things are getting hard. But I think whenever you can take stock and just zoom out a little bit with whatever you're doing and see. Exactly hey, I might not be having success this week or today or this particular hour or even this month or quarter. The things I'm doing are the right things and are planting the right seeds. Absolutely. Is that something that's always come naturally to you, that that kind of thought process? It has, yeah. Definitely always been more of a long-term, um, I'm in it for the long-term, right? That, that's always been kind of my, my thought process. I grew up playing chess as a young kid, so I've always been kind of like a couple steps ahead versus just reacting to what's going on, you know? So I, I think I've always thought that way. You talked about how with a previous business, you went in with a three-year exit plan. Mm -hmm. Could you talk about both, I guess, that exit plan, the decision there, but also that business a little bit? Absolutely. So uh, in 2000 and uh, COVID happened, what, 2020, right? Mm -hmm. 2020, I was just getting my years right. So right after COVID happened, uh, we, we saw an opportunity in the market, right, where big box stores like Hertz and so forth, big, you know, uh, box stores that rent vehicles, um, they got rid of about 40 to 60% of their fleet, which created this amped up demand for rentals once the market opened back up and people started traveling. And at the time, uh, one of my business partners brought it up to me like, hey, have you heard about Turo? I said, no, I never heard of it. He's like, well, I've tried it before in the past, but it's time to become like a big thing right now. He's like, matter of fact, I just traveled to X, Y, and Z, and I rented a car through Toro, and it was a lot cheaper than, you know, going through Hertz or whatever. So I'm like, hmm, that's interesting. Me and you always wanted to have fancy cars, but we've always been very frugal, right? So even though we would make good money, we never, like, bought anything too fancy. So I'm like, okay, how can we obtain these vehicles that makes sense right where we are able to turn liabilities into assets because we've always considered those type of cars as liabilities so we looked more into the business model and very soon i realized um that for instance uh with the slingshots right i looked at what is the acquisition cost for a slingshot a slingshot was running around 25 to thirty thousand at the time and the those are those little like dune buggy looking yeah, things the right trikes, yeah yep. So we realized, we looked at what are they going for? What's the daily rate on them? At the time, they were going for about 200 bucks a day. Okay, what is the monthly cost on this? Oh, it's only 400 bucks. Wait a minute. So if I rent it two days out of the, out of the month, it covers its basis, right? And then everything after that, that's our profit, net profit. So we did the math. I'm like, okay, even if it's rented out, let's say worst case scenario anywhere between 10 days to 15 days right being very conservative we're making way more money than if we were to dive into real estate and put up a long-term you know tenant right where your profit margins are usually between four to six hundred dollars per you know rental i'm like with something like this first of all we could buy zero down compared to real estate i gotta put you know 25 20 to 25 percent down we could buy a zero down uh, vehicle based on our good credit 
and we could go straight into making money right away about a thousand dollars to fifteen hundred per vehicle right so we're like all right let's test it out so first thing we do is buy wow. a slingshot now <laughs> first month it didn't go that well because uh, we bought it in december right after the holidays were over and <laughs> we went into january so in orlando january is a bad month for like rentals because everybody's yeah. already kind of going back holidays are over so first month we're like oh fuck like i think we made a bad decision and we stuck with this 400 dollars payment but again this is nothing for me and him 400 dollars per month that's nothing february goes by same thing march came now we're in the money so now march came we made 1500 bucks that covered all three months yeah April, plus a little more. Plus a little bit more. April, same thing. May, just kept going up from wow. there. Wow. Right. So now we're in. So by, I'll say by April, May, we decided to go all in. Because now we had a proven model. Right. So by April, May, we bought 12 more cars. 12. Wow. 12. And we went from uh, sports and luxury. We went for what we call the affordable flex. So we didn't we we understood our market very well. We're both very business savvy. So we understood that Orlando is not a place where people go to flex, right? Yeah. It's a place people come for families, or sometimes they come here for business. Maybe they want something nice, but they're not here to rent out a Lamborghini. Because where are you gonna go with a Lamborghini yeah. in Orlando anyway, right? There's not really a lot of there's places like, to show up. There's one guy that has like a golden Lamborghini uh-huh. downtown. I'm pretty sure lives downtown because I see it around here a lot. Every time I see it, I'm like, yeah. What a dork. Right. Yeah. Like, what? It, 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 stand, it stands doing? out like a sore thumb. Yeah. Right? It's just not the place. In the worst it. way. Like, it just Correct. doesn't It doesn't look right. Yeah, exactly. So, in Miami, that would probably be normal. <laughs> yeah. But here, that's just not it. So, we went for experienced vehicles. So, even in, in every industry, even with real estate, what I'm doing right now, I focus a lot on the consumer experience. So, when we started Toro, we started focusing, okay, well, how can we buy vehicles that people want to rent? And that Hertz doesn't have, right? Because we know all the cars they have are white, black, you know, very dull colors. Mm-hmm. So the very first thing we did to separate ourselves from the competition was yellow. We're going for like these bright colors, right? That provide some sort of experience. Colors mm-hmm. that you remember as a kid. Hey, I had a car tell you of this. Then we started going after cars that have a huge, um, like cold following, like Corvettes, nice. Mustangs, right? These are what we call experience cars. So you normally it's not something flashy per se, but it's like it's a nice, enjoyable enjoyable car. Exactly. So we started going after cars like that. Then, of course, we started adding like a G wagon and a few cars a little bit more higher up. But we were going for the experience. That's what we wanted to provide to our customers. So when we started buying the vehicles, I came up with a formula on how many days, kind of like a plug and play that eventually started selling to our students and mentees of where you add the price of the vehicle, the interest rate, your insurance, what is the daily rate they go for on Toro after you did your market research, and then it spits out a yes or no answer for you whether this is a good car to buy or not Hmm. because it meets our parameters, which means that that car has to break even within five to seven days max. Wow, five to seven days. Five to seven days max. Anything past that, it will give you a no answer. You do not want to buy it because... What we noticed that even during low seasons, the car is still going to rent for at least eight to ten days. At okay. a high season, it could be fifteen to twenty. Gotcha. And we wanted to make sure that you were always going to be in the green, even if it was a low exactly. month. Exactly. Okay. So that that was the magic formula, and then of course with that spreadsheet, we also had a uh, financial modeler 
and then we gave him some parameters of what we want him to create as far as the exit strategy. Mm. We told him, hey, listen, we want you to create with every vehicle, and that was part of the formula where you should be able to exit out in three years. So, case you know, worst case scenario, something happens in the market. Uh, we wanted to make sure that you'll be able to exit out because you bought it at the right price point. So we will look at um, how much does that car depreciate in that three-year period, and are you able to exit out? Basically. And you want to kind of hit that perfect curve of like. Correct. So what we notice most of the time, as long as you didn't buy cars when when there was a 20, 30K markup, right? Mm -hmm. All the cars that we bought was the MSRP. We didn't pay that markup. And for our students that were looking at cars with markups, we tell them like, hey, man, just, just stay away from it. It's not worth the risk. It's a no on the it's, equation. It's a, it's a no on the equation. Yeah. Can you do it? Do you want to take the risk? That's on you, but for us, that's a no. Yeah. So um, we had the equation where it's looking at the depreciation as well as the amortization of your loan, right? So at what point do the two meet? And at what point does the amortization kind of exceed the depreciation? So now you have that, that, if I'm saying it right, you, now you have positive equity at that point, if the formula is correct. Hmm. Meaning that you've paid more of your loan off than what the car has depreciated. Wow, okay. Right? So now you have that positive equity. You could exit on your third year with positive equity. That's incredible. Because every car does have, you do reach a point in your amortization schedule where your car is going to be worth a little bit more than what it has depreciated. I didn't realize that. Yeah, it's huh. usually it's around that three, sometimes four year mark, depending on how big, you, if you have a seven year loan, four year, you know, five year loan and so forth. And depending on whether we, you bought it used or you bought it brand new, right? So a lot of the cars that we bought were also two to three years old because when the majority of the depreciation occurs. So then for the remaining two to three years, we were gotcha. kind of already where we need to be. You've already, you've bought it past that, the primary amount of the depreciation. Right, so the, usually 30 to 40% of the car depreciates, especially with those higher end cars in that first two to three years. Mm. So we're buying on that second to third year, right, where the majority already has occurred. And then we keep it for only two to three more years we're making sure we're buying it with a certain amount of mileage because we want to stay within the warranty period yeah to avoid any possible you know problems so everything so all was this would well factor into the exactly. equation yep. i think there's a there's something to be said about just being able to approach any business decision in that calculated of a manner right. i mean entrepreneurship on the surface level is very very risky Absolutely. until you mitigate the risk Correct. you can and mitigate the risk in a yeah. lot of ways you can and, and don't get me wrong right like even with all those formulas that we had, we did have a few cars that didn't, even though it met the formula at the time, because the market shifted so quickly, it eventually did not meet those, right? So we were kind of stuck with a few of them, and we had to find a way to exit out of those too. But that's, you know, part of the game, right? You take a calculated risk. I mean, we try to figure out as much as we could and try to create uh, a formula for everybody else to be able to follow that they normally would have. Because there were, there were gurus out there preaching hey go go get 30 cars for and we're like no don't, yeah. no don't get 30 40 cars i'm like listen me and my partner bought 12 cars but that's because with our income if something was to happen we could still afford these yeah <laughs> you know what i mean you can't go you know just balls deep and just yeah say, Fuck it. if like, something shifts too much you're just done you're exactly. you're underwater you're bankrupt correct yeah so where do you keep all those cars at that time <laughs> did you have to get like a storage facility so at the time i started with um I had a pretty long driveway at my house, uh, so I could fit two in the garage and four in the driveway. And then, of course, in the front of the house and so forth. 
But it got to the point because I was living in a uh, HOA community where I had a bunch <laughs> of Karens reported me to the HOA. <laughs> I was just trying uh, yeah. to visualize <laughs> yeah. this in an HOA yeah, community. It, yeah, it's, it's really bad. And again, for me not being used to living in an HOA community, coming from up north, we don't really have that. Um, it, it, it caught me by surprise. I'm like, damn, okay. So I got the notice in my house saying, hey, you know, you're running an illegal, not illegal, but an operation. You it probably just there. like on the surface level looked like some kind of illegal, illegal operation. Yeah. Like just all these people exactly. getting these cars. Because I, and the thing I wouldn't, I wouldn't have them though pick up the vehicle necessarily from my house because obviously that's uh, okay. a security issue, right? So I right. wouldn't never do that because I have kids, a wife. Uh, so I would always pick a location further away from the house. They would never know where okay. I live. Um, but just having them parked there raised a lot of eyebrows. Right? Probably looked like, like you were having parties all the time. Some, something's going on. Yeah. This guy's selling drugs. Doing, <laughs> something's going on, right? Even looked like an episode up, of Entourage or exactly. something. Even picking up my kids, I would pick up my daughter in a different car every <laughs> every week. And the teachers are looking at like, okay, what's, what's, what's up with this guy? <laughs> That's funny. You know? So for them, they're like, oh, my God, I love it. My daddy's picking me up in a new car. But for everybody else watching, like, okay, what is he into? And most people didn't know about Turo at that time, I don't think. It was a fairly new thing when when people were having all that success with it. Absolutely. I mean, you could tell people about Turo now, and there's still going to be a few people that still haven't heard about it. You know, I don't think Turo did enough marketing like Airbnb did. Right. That's where it never became – because. Airbnb is a household name. Turo right. never became a household Absolutely. name. Exactly. For the for the listeners and the watchers, it's it essentially is the Airbnb of renting cars. It's Excellent. like a you get on an app and you just rent a car from someone, and Correct. the the app kind of covers the whole liability of things to an extent. And and I think uh, they really had an opportunity to really take over the market and put Hertz and all these companies out of business. They dropped the ball because again they did not do enough marketing. Um, and then they did not focus enough on the host, right? These are the people providing the vehicles. Without them, you can't really run the business. Uh, there were so many flaws within that business model um, that I feel like if they would have just spent a little bit more time listening to what the hosts need, et cetera, it would have really took off. Because the biggest difference between renting through Toro versus renting through Hertz or anybody else is that you actually know what you're going to drive when yeah. you get there, right? It's With Hertz, you pick a class they tell mm-hmm. you it might be this it might be that you don't even know what color you're gonna end up with by the time you get to the airport i think that was one of the biggest uh differentiating factors that toro had now as a toro host were you able to get involved with insurance companies in any extent was that something that they had cracked well we got involved a lot with insurance claims right because you're going to deal with a lot of crazy scenarios running that type of business and we have stories for days when it comes to the type of claims. We had cars shot at. We had all types of things, cars burnt, you know, uh, all types of stuff in the car. Uh, so you learn how to, like, deal with insurances when it comes to that. Because w- it was kind of like a, a gray area when it came to insurance in Toro. Like, yes, Toro, Toro does technically provide you with insurance and covers the claims. Um, but at the same time, insurance companies were against you having a car in Toro. Almost gotcha. that if they find out you had a car on tour, they would cancel your policy. Wow. Yeah. Uh, but same thing happened when, um, when uh, what is it, Lyft and Uber came along. Yeah. If you remember, when people started leveraging their cars to do Uber and Lyft, all insurance companies were heated. Mm-hmm. Right? Because this is a business activity now. This is no longer, you're not using it as a personal vehicle. They want so their, for them, it's a liability problem and all these things. They want and, their extra claim to exactly. the money. Exactly. And in the beginning... Uh, they were canceling people's policy, right? When, if they were doing Uber Lyft. Eventually, they created 
a uh, policy just for that. Okay. Where now you can I go to your insurance actually. company, you could ask for a rider to do, you know, Toro Lyft or, I mean, not Toro, uh, Lyft or um, uh, Uber. Interesting. And I think the same thing is going to happen with Toro down the line, where insurance company is going to get smart enough to say, you know what? Okay, no, you could do it. That's fine. Because since they're, they're covering the cost anyway, what's going to charge you for a rider for you to have this type of, uh, you know? Yeah, it's one thing for them to just be upset about it and start Correct. canceling things. It's yeah. it's a lot smarter if they start saying, well, why are we upset about this? It's yeah. because we're not getting our money. Is there a way for us to get our money? Correct. Yeah, let's the, do the host it. at the end of the day is not around fuck the insurance holder. They're, look, I'm, I'm insured by this company. I don't mm -hmm. know why you have an issue. I'm like, th this activity is insured by this company right here, mm -hmm. you know? So. But it's like anything else, right? For them, it's a risk mitigation thing where it's like a liability. Well, what if it, it doesn't cover it? Now we come in second in position and what happens there? So, I want to go back to something you said about Turo, how you think they, they didn't really capitalize because uh -huh. they didn't do enough marketing. We were talking off air before the podcast about how doubling down on marketing when market conditions are taking a turn for the worst can be the right move. I wanted to get into that a little bit. and. <laughs> Your philosophy on that? On that, yeah, definitely. Um, I think when everybody else, like I said, for Toro, for instance, and I'm doing the same thing with real estate, um, I think they had an opportunity to double down and they fumbled the ball, right? They had an opportunity where when Hertz and all these big box stores got rid of their fleet, they should have doubled down on taking over that market because it took Hertz and all these companies almost two years to recoup that inventory. Wow. You know, now they're back to normal, yeah. but it took them almost two years. And I feel like Toro could have had an amazing two year run where they could have put them out of business. Kind of how they didn't have to acquire the inventory yeah. themselves. They yeah. just needed to get people to sign up, to sign up. Exactly. Just brand awareness. Mm -hmm. Let people know. Right. They were allowing they were relying heavily more so on just word of mouth and just people kind of letting other people know about Toro and also people looking for alternatives. Because what would happen is people would go to the airport. All the cars are gone. They're like, well, I need a car. It's Florida. You can't get around here without a car. So now you're Googling car rentals, right? So you see mm -hmm. car rental companies, small mom and pop stores, but then you're seeing, oh, Toro. Mm -hmm. What is this? Let me try this out. So for a lot of, I would say almost 60% of our clients at the time were all first-time users. I mean, that should tell you something. Wow. First-time users that have ever used Toro. Wow. Many of them were afraid at the time, right? Because they're like, first experience, you don't know what to expect. Yeah. Same thing with if you were to do Airbnb for the river, you don't know what to expect, mm -hmm. right? When Airbnb first came out, I'm like, I will never use that. I'm like, it's too many, like, probably people got cameras in the room and all types <laughs> of stories you would hear. And, that right? did happen, yeah. Yeah. But now it's like, hey, you don't think twice about that. You're like, Airbnb, yep, let me go uh, book it. So that, wow, 60% of new users. You would, and you would expect that that number should just go down and down and down. And if yeah. it's not going down, clearly they're not increasing the, the lifetime value of their customers. Yeah, I mean, that, but also, I think, uh, just more users, period, right? right. So one w one part of it is like, okay, the customer had a great enough experience where they're actually going to use it again for a second time. And that's where, you know, being a good host and a super host and all that comes into play. But the second part is how do you acquire new customers to add them to the platform? And I think that's where they messed up on. Yeah. Right, because I think most hosts were doing a pretty decent job to make sure that, you know, because obviously you're running a business uh, to get a return customer, but I think it was the second part that they uh, fumbled the ball on, which was generating new customers. Now, speaking of generating new customers and just doubling down on marketing, I wanted to talk about the state of the market today and where you see it's at currently and going. And you talked about how you're really considering just 
doubling your marketing, like going all in more and more and increasing it. Wanted to get into that and, and the thoughts behind that a little bit. Okay. So, yeah, I mean, I think everybody's feeling the pinch right now in the market, regardless of what industry you're in, whether it's real estate, uh, mortgages, uh, automotive, it doesn't matter what industry you're in, everybody's feeling it. Uh, and a big part of it is obviously because of the rates and just what's going on in the market overall, right? Inflation, et cetera. Um, for me, uh, my philosophy is always, you know, if I see fear in the market, that's when I'm doubling down, right? If I see people are afraid to do something, I'm more of a contrarian, right? Where I'm, I'm doing the opposite of what everybody else is doing because I feel like that's where some of the biggest gains could could happen. So, for example, in the real estate industry, um, I read a statistic that said back in 2008, two-thirds of all realtors exited the market during that two, three-year right after, right? Two-thirds. That's a lot of realtors. You know, there's almost, I think, what, 1.5 million realtors in the U.S.? So you're talking about almost two-thirds exiting out? What do you think happened to the people that stayed? The years that followed, they probably had some of their best years. Because yeah. imagine, let's say, you know, there's realtors are like a dime a dozen, right? We all know a realtor, <laughs> maybe 10. <laughs> so I think if, you know, 70% of them exit out, who you're normally accustomed to dealing with, they're not going to be around no more. So now you got to look for like, hey, well, who's left? So that's the one I said, that's doing all the marketing. Who's doing all the, yeah. So and that's how you come across the ones. So for me, it's like okay, if you could afford to, right? Because it depends on your personal financial picture overall. Double down on what's generating you leads. It doesn't have to be social media. It could be whatever form you were using before. Whether were you using flyers, uh, open house, whatever it is that you were doing to generate that. Double down. Though. Don't take your foot off the gas now. Yeah. You know, try to keep up with it if you can. If anything, double down. Yeah, it's going to get harder. But ultimately, if you start just if you can know your numbers and Correct. what's working yep. and double down on it, maybe your your cost per acquisition goes up. But ultimately, even if your cost per acquisition is going up, you could there's probably something you could do to get savvy about just keeping your customers yep. getting more out of each customer and, mm -hmm. and just getting a longer value and I, then i think it's gonna become cheaper actually because think about yeah. it um if everybody's spending money on facebook ads once that number drops right what mm -hmm. do you think is going to happen your cost per click and so forth it's true right because before you're fighting for attention against 30 other ads whatever it might be but now if it's only 10 ads versus 100 what do you think is going to happen it should be able to ideally attract a lot more clicks or views and so forth, right? Same thing, same thing with social media. If I'm competing with, let's say, a thousand other realtors creating content, if 900 of them stop and it's just me versus 100, what do you think is going to happen? Now I'm going to get a lot more views per post, you know, as long as it's good, you know, post, of course, good content. Yeah, it's when there's blood in the streets, that's when it's time to buy. I think that's true of really any other industry and in marketing or buying some kind of asset or anything. Where do you see, aside from real estate, where do you see some of the biggest opportunity in the market going forward, just to, using all that experience that you have from different industries? Um, I think you're going to see opportunities everywhere, right? For whether it's stocks, whether it's real estate, whether it's any asset class you could think of, there's going to be opportunity. Whether it's acquiring maybe a small mom and pop business that's on the verge of, you know, unfortunately going bankrupt. Um, you know, there's going to be opportunity everywhere. So you just have to be well-versed in what you're doing understanding why you're doing it 
and just having uh, you know your numbers right. I think that's what it really comes down to. Some of it is honestly even common sense, right? For instance, I'm not a big stock guy. I don't know much about stocks. But when the market crashed during COVID, and not crashed, but you know it, it went down and dipped, it was almost a no-brainer for me to, uh, let me drop 20K real quick on airline stock because I know that airlines are not just going to go bankrupt tomorrow. We need to fly to other, co- like, you, you know, like common sense stuff. So if it went from the stock being at $30 per share to down to 4 or $5, put me in. Yeah. It's a no, I don't need to understand. Like, that's common sense, right? Like, if it's trading for pennies on the dollar for something that's legit, that's been around for a long time, and I don't see it going nowhere, if anything, probably get bailed out, right? And you would yeah. think it is common sense, but common sense ain't so common sometimes, funny right. enough. I, so many people did just freak out when stuff like that started happening yep. and started selling because yep. they think, like, people think intuitively on just a, a shorter time horizon right. that think, well, it's going down now. What if it gets even worse? And yep. then I, like, missed my opportunity to sell. That's what the market does largely, and that creates this opportunity if you're able to just play the long game a little bit more to really capitalize. Yeah, it was, like I said, it was just the fear in the market. So when I saw that and I saw everybody just panicking, I'm like, look, we're not at war here. This is just, <laughs> you know, a lot of this is just kind of induced, you know, due to whatever uh, they were doing at the time as far as shutting businesses down and so forth. But overall, I'm like, look, this is not going to last forever. You know, we need these industries. They're, they're not going to vanish. Yeah. Right? So. Now, on a totally different note, I know we had covered a little bit the fact that you were in law enforcement at one point. I wanted to ask you, I know you you can't really bring up which uh, agency you were with, mm-hmm. but I wanted to ask you just about some of the things that you learned during the course of that. I'm sure probably a lot of things about leadership. I'd love to get into some of that. I, I think uh, most branches of you know law enforcement, military, anything of that sort, you definitely learn a lot when it comes to leadership communication and so forth. Um, I think for me, uh, I joined because I wanted to have a positive impact somehow. A little bit childish of me, to be honest. Um, But I've always kind of considered myself kind of like a protector, you know, of people's interests or whatever it is, lives and so forth. Uh, So when I joined, I joined with that reason in mind and very soon I learned that that's that's not what really goes down. Um, a lot of it is still driven by budgets and um, certain, I, I don't want to say quotas because it's not really quota-based, but like anything else, right? So you have to almost perform in order for it to, to make sense. Um, and when I realized that it's not about necessarily um, saving lives, but more so just kind of keeping up a certain, that's when I'm like, okay, yeah get out of this <laughs> yeah it makes sense yeah. i mean if you get into it for one reason and Correct. you realize the incentives just aren't set up for that and there's a lot of good good people in that industry don't get me wrong. a lot of good people in law enforcement you're gonna have your bad apples you're gonna have your good apples um but i think it's just for me um and, and not to knock it because i think what they do is amazing i mean you risk your life every single day uh it, it just it wasn't what i thought it was going to be that's all yeah you know, so. I think a lot about incentives just because I think every almost everything is driven by them if you really dig into it. And I think there's some industries where the incentive structures are just so thrown off or tangled up somehow that it's so difficult to do good in them. And 
there's not necessarily an immediate good fix for it either. It's it's Absolutely. tough. People go into things like law enforcement wanting to make a change, and the system is almost just broken to start. Correct. It's tough. Correct. Yeah, it, it requires definitely. <laughs> there's a lot of work to be done in, the, in that uh, in that field. That's for sure. And maybe who knows? Maybe in the future, uh, maybe I find a way back to to be able to fix that. But for now, that's not my. Now, what are some of the positive takeaways that you had? Though? What kind of things did you learn about leadership through that? Uh, well, I think uh, I did a, um, at the time, it was a three-month, three-month uh, academy uh, near D.C. is where they sent us. Um, so definitely learned a lot, I think, being on the opposite side. Uh, growing up in Philadelphia, I think we had a lot of hatred for law enforcement and cops just in general. Uh, because of all the stories you hear and so forth. But I think being on the opposite side, I understood, like, wait a minute, like, I see why they do what they do. And I wish more people knew this, right? More people understood that when they, they draw their gun or they do what they do, they don't do it because they're malintent. You know, they're, they're trying to also protect their life. They also want to go home to their children at the end of the day, you know, so. There's a quote I heard recently about how sometimes, well, I'll probably butcher it, but the, the kind of general principle of it was it's impossible to hate someone from a place of complete understanding. Correct. So a lot of times hate or malice or malintent just comes from a place of not being able to understand why someone's doing something. And if you can dig into understanding why someone's doing something a little bit more, a lot of times it can dissipate that feeling and make you at least feel a little bit better about what's going on. Yeah. People fear what they don't understand. You know, that's what it really kind of boils down to. They don't understand it, they fear it, so. And for me, like I said, it was very eye-opening kind of going through that and being on the opposite side of that, so. I want to get into just the the mindset a little bit of being a high performer Mm -hmm. in any industry because this has been kind of a trend across whatever you've done. You mentioned earlier how you've always wanted to reach the top and reach the pinnacle. Where do you think that comes from for you? Um, I think comes from... um, my mother always kind of pushed me early on uh, to to be the man of the house and just to put me in those positions where I have to just take charge. So I think that's where a lot of that uh, drive comes from. Um, also, early on, my parents, uh, because they both worked so much, two, three jobs each, we grew up in different countries from Albania to Greece to before coming to Philadelphia, and I see them struggle. I've seen them, you know, uh, put so much work in. It allowed me uh, to be creative in my way, meaning that they never got involved enough to kind of, you know how like the schools kind of put you in a box, right? I want you to do certain things. Because I was kind of more like just let go, just kind of be out there, kind of discover on my own. It allowed me to have this uh, problem solving almost mentality, right? Where I don't feel like anything could stop me. Like every every problem has a solution and I'm gonna find a way to, to get to it. So I think that's what really helped me kind of uh, become a high performer, but just believe in myself. So I might look at it like like delusion, like, well, how, how can you believe in yourself if you haven't even done it? But I, some of it is also part, I think, is faith-based too, knowing that, you know, um, God has me, knowing the skills that I have. I know maybe I haven't accomplished the things that I'm confident that I'm going to accomplish, but just having that, that faith element really kind of got me there. You have to. I say one of the three essential elements of being an entrepreneur in any industry is 
just the optimism to believe that you're Absolutely. capable of achieving the thing you want to achieve. It takes it takes some blind optimism because there is no guarantee of results. Correct, correct. And, and, and my one thing that I think I always hear a lot is um, people are always kind of thrown off by my confidence. Like I come off very confident in any room you put me in. It doesn't matter if it's a boardroom or if it's uh, in the streets. <laughs> I, I could get along in any place because there's that confidence there. And I've been in different environments uh, where I'm, I know how to handle myself. So, Speaking of being in different environments, I wanted to talk about another thing we had kind of mentioned off air. And you kind of alluded to it there, just living in different countries. Mm -hmm. I wanted to ask a little bit about, because you mentioned you've lived in democracies and communisms. Yeah. I wanted to talk about the difference between the two of those, because it's not really something I've covered on here before, but that's, what was... That's a, that's a good topic. Uh, so with communism, um, I will say that I left by the age of five, so I can't say that I experienced enough of it. I think more of it was kind of like through um, hearsay of my parents kind of like sharing their stories of what they went through, showing us videos, photos, whatever it might be, and kind of explaining their story. I think that's what really kind of stood out to me. A big part of it was, uh, for example, when we started school here in the U.S., and I was undecided my first year in college, they were looking at me like I was fucking crazy because in their country, they get told what they're going to be. You don't get to decide your profession. Imagine you're being told, hey, you, you're going to go become a doctor. Uh, you're going to go become a mechanic. And it doesn't really matter because they all get paid about the same. So there's not enough incentive to be like, oh, I want to be something else. They all get paid more or less right there. You know, there's not a huge uh, incremental advantage to work as a doctor versus maybe something else. You know? So it was just inconceivable for them to imagine having that choice. Having that even. choice and not knowing what to do. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely, yeah. And then, of course, they also, you know, sharing stories of uh, their struggles early on. Um, and, of course, they are both uh, believed in democracy, so th there were times where they were kind of like almost being hunted down for believing in that by people of the opposite, you know, party and so forth. Wow. Uh, and then we went to Greece, which Greece is obviously uh, the birthplace of democracy, right? And then from there to the U.S. So definitely got to witness different forms of to a certain degree and kind of assess the good and the bad with each, right? So, for example, overseas, they have uh, universal health care, right, which in the U.S. we don't. Uh, there's certain things that I think um, what I try to bring here being in the U.S. and move from Philly to uh, Florida is the quality of lifestyle. I think in Europe they focus a lot more on the quality of lifestyle, especially in Greece, whereas here in the U.S. people are working um, two, three, four jobs over time, whatever it takes for, you know, um, whatever goal it is, maybe the American dream, maybe whatever that is. But over there, they focus more on not the money, but the quality of lifestyle. That's why they have those siestas midday and everything shuts down. So I'm, I've experienced all that. So I, when I came to the U.S. and I'm trying to explain this to my friends, they're like, what, what are you talking about? You know, I'm, I'm sounding like I'm lazy or I'm coming from a lazy background, but that's not the case. Like, no, I think you guys don't understand, you know, that your focus needs to shift. And we're yeah. seeing it now, right, with the new generation – they're big on like, hey, um, work-life balance and all these things, right? Well, guess what? That stuff's been going around in Europe forever. <laughs> yeah. You guys are finally catching up to it, you know? What do you think, what are your thoughts on having work-life balance and how do you think, um, what do you think the right 
I guess, for lack of better words, balance is between that and working hard? How do you, how do you achieve your goals with and keep yourself sustainable without not working hard enough or working too hard? Uh, who said it best? It was um, Hermosi. I think he said it. He says uh, something about not work-life balance, but work-life integration. So you don't want to balance it. You never balance it. You got to find a way to integrate the two. You know, your work and your personal life, where kind of there's that certain synergy, that certain you know, and and that 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 really stood out to me. Because yeah. for a long time, I tried to figure out, well, how do I balance it? I gotta if I stop doing this to give them more of this. There's always a kind of like an effect, a cause and effect, right? You, you dial this down, yeah, this goes up and this this goes down, right? So I think the integration part, kind of almost making it, you know, blend, that sounds more like it, you know. What are some things that have worked for you personally for that integration that have given you that balance? I'm still still a work in progress. I can't lie, still a work in progress. Still figuring out day by day. Um, I think now uh, I get my kids and my wife more involved in what I'm doing, so they could understand why I'm doing what I'm doing. I'm not just working to work, because in my experience, with my parents it was always more like I just know they're going from this time to this time, and I don't really understood why they're working so much. Right? Is it because, is it because you're trying to pay off your house? Like, what is, why are you doing what you're doing? I guess that's a big part of it. Like, if you're gonna integrate the two, you have they have to understand why you're doing X, Y, and Z at, at work, and why you're not spending as much time with them, and vice versa. I really like that because that ties into what we were talking about before, where you can't you can't hate something or you can't be overly upset or have mal- too much malintent against something if you completely understand it. So if you do have someone in your family who's working a lot and they do go out of their way to really share why, where it's coming from, how the, the effects that it's having on the family or on you and your dynamic and, and why they're doing what they're doing, I think you can't hate it because you understand it. Yeah, I mean, now it's gotten to the point where every time I have a closing, when I get home and we pay over our food and so forth, we kind of celebrate that too as a family. So that's part of the integration part, right? Where they understand, like, oh, daddy just had a close. That means he's about to get paid. That means we're going to do X, Y, and Z or whatever, you know, it is that they want to do. So, And on the, if you're talking about before that, maybe you have to work a little extra hard leading up to that closing. If you're sharing that, then they understand where that's coming from, why it matters, Correct. why it needs to be done. And, and they might r- more readily understand the effect of, you being a little bit busy mm-hmm. for a couple of days and what that's gonna cause. Yeah, and even with um, social media, for instance, right? I'm constantly on my phone now, more than ever before, mm-hmm. because before I wasn't really on social media. Two, three years ago, I didn't really care about posting. I didn't really have a presence. I never cared for it. But once I realized that you could leverage this as a tool, you know, for marketing and so forth, then I was all in. So now they see me on my phone all the time, they're probably thinking, oh, I'm probably just scrolling like everybody else, but I'm not. I'm answering comments. I'm basically actively working on my business. So I have to sit there and show them, like, hey, look, this is what daddy's doing. You see the content? You see how this one performed versus this one? And I'm trying to kind of explain to them why I'm on my phone so much. And, of course, we create a, a time where we just put all the phones away and try to sit down as a family. But part of that integration, right, just explaining what am I doing. I think that's great because that's also going to teach them to view it as something to be leveraged Correct. and not, and probably help counteract the what is mostly going around, which is kind of a culture of just consumerism, Absolutely. which it's there's a place for it, sure, yeah. but it 
can be very counterproductive to actually getting your work done and leveraging it as a tool. It is. I mean, and I think, um, like, with my oldest daughter, she's about 12, she uses it a lot for that purpose, right, where it's, like, just scrolling, just, you know, mindlessly. And I have to remind her, like, look, if Daddy wasn't using this for to make money, I would not even be on here. Because it, it really, like, I'm not just going to sit there and just look at nonsense. And I'm like, if you're going to use this, I don't, I'm not going to take it away from you, right? If you want to use uh, TikTok or whatever you want to use, at least use it to learn something. Mm-hmm. All right, follow people in the space that you want to be 10 years from now, 20 years from now. But that you're more than welcome to use it. So I don't, I don't want to completely take it away because I know it's going to be a tool for them to use. So I do want them to grow up with it, but I just want to use it purposefully. Constructively. Right? Constructively, so... I think the best thing you can do when you're trying to lead someone, whether it be your kids or just leading an employee or yeah. any, leading anyone, is just kind of show them and expose them to the benefits of something and Absolutely. how to do things constructively rather than trying to force a hand. Um, any other lessons that stand out to you in the realm of leadership that you think are things you've learned across industries that apply to everything? Um, with leadership... I'm trying to think. I would say just kind of uh, taking charge when it's needed. I feel like a lot of people who may not see themselves as leaders, maybe because how they grew up or whatever it is, eventually you're going to be put in a situation where that that leader in you is going to come out. It's going to force you to come out, whether you like it or not. Um, so for me, a lot of times, um, I don't think I was like a natural-born leader per se, but I was more of the type that I kind of rose to the occasion as needed. You know, so um, I don't have anything particular in leadership I could like really share at the moment that kind of, you know, comes to mind though. What's the thing you're most excited for in your career right now? Uh, For now, I would say the thing that I'm most excited about is um, when we do have the next crash. I don't know when it will be. Uh, I'm not saying it's going to happen now. It could happen a few years from now Um, because I feel like in 2008 I missed that opportunity. Right, I was too young, didn't have enough money to take advantage of it, and even though it's sad when it does happen, but again, it's like anything else, right? It's cyclical, it happens. Um, I feel like I'm a little bit more prepared this time around to be able to jump in and take advantage. Yeah, I think even thinking about it, um, thinking about real estate agents leaving, I think there's even a position or a potential to find good people that just don't want to or or aren't prepared to take that risk and bring them to a place where you're willing to take that risk and, yeah. and be that boat for them. Absolutely. There's a lot of uh, capitalization to be had. I think I think um, another thing happening there, I, we, we're talking about businesses, potentially buying businesses mm-hmm. while these times are happening. It's such a good opportunity. I think people should be thinking about these types of things, like how to acquire assets Correct. for the future that might be down now, but are going to go up. Yeah. Yeah, there's uh, um, another, uh, I think, guru I follow online. I think his name is uh, Ronald Frazier, I believe it is. Uh, he speaks highly, uh, not highly, he speaks on acquiring businesses all the time. He's like an ex-attorney, um, and his stuff is good, like really, really good. Somebody I would highly recommend you, you look into, uh, especially given your field, right? Um, because he, he shows you how to acquire businesses without having to actually put up any capital. 
right? It's about providing value and, and you know, arranging accordingly uh, to the contract. That's the thing. I mean, if someone wants to exit their business and they don't have access to buyers that are willing to come in and just throw down a ton of cash and Correct. give them a, an exit the next day, yeah. usually they're going to be willing to make some kind of thing work out where maybe you take the liability over Correct. and that's what they needed. They, they just wanted the liability to be off of them. And the cash flow, a lot of times, if you do a good job with the business and you're a good steward, can be can outweigh mm-hmm. the actual liabilities of the business. Yeah, a lot of times that's all it is for them. I mean, yeah, do they want to obviously exit out and make some a good amount of money? Yes, but most of the time they know that's also not possible because if they're in that position, that means that their business is kind of downward trending, right? Mm-hmm. So that puts them in a, you know, most people are not gonna buy a downward trading business and so the evaluation is gonna hurt from that, right? So you're offering, hey, listen, I'll cover that so you don't go bankrupt, you don't have to do any of that. And uh, I'll still give you, you know, what you're looking for is just going to happen over maybe a three-year period versus right now. Yeah, and you'll probably have to stay around and stay train around, me a little correct. bit, make sure we can get some management in place. Absolutely. The biggest advice I would give to someone who is thinking about selling their business is you were kind of alluding at it there. Like, it's going to be hard if it if it is downward trending, so find a way to give it some upward trend. Or you could even offer um, consultant for ownership right so let's say you you, you uh, identify a business as downward trading and you know it could be turned around it's just that the owner doesn't know what he's he doesn't know um, and you able or isn't to, willing to or able to do it to for do whatever it, reason right maybe they don't have their down to their last dollar they don't have any more money for marketing or whatever it might be want to retire retire have a better opportunity yeah that's where you come in and say listen you know um, rather than me buying this business off of you I could offer X Y and Z service to get you from two million a year to ten million a year or fifty million a year, whatever your projection is, uh, as long as you give me, if I prove myself, you give me X amount of, you know, ownership in the business over time. Yeah, that can even start as a revenue share too Correct. for a share of added revenue within a particular area. For example, if someone had, I just got pitched on this by a business owner. Uh-huh. Something I'm considering is if a business is having great success with it's content marketing, for example, yep. and you happen to be an, an expert at outbound mm-hmm. and they have no idea what they're doing with outbound lead generation. Right. You could come in and build an outbound branch within a business yep. and take ownership over the revenue that comes in from that. Absolutely. As long as you're able to show that you're directly attributing to it, you're bringing reven- revenue that they didn't have before. So it just makes yep. sense. Absolutely. I think the secret key to uh, and you kind of touched on this a little bit. The secret key to a lot of business is finding creative joint ventures. It is. I definitely agree. Um, I think most business owners, they're good at whatever it is that got them started. <laughs> but many times they don't know how to get to that next level or they become their own bottleneck in that business, right? Because they don't want to delegate. They don't want to allow other people to take over. So at some point you have to realize your strengths. Like I said, I was telling you before, I know my strengths are not cold calling. So I'm not mm-hmm. even gonna attempt. Can I learn it? Yes. Am I gonna spend three, six months, whatever it is, learning it? No, I could just continue perfecting what I'm really good at. And know? if you really wanted to, you could always hire an expert at cold calling yes, and exactly. build that as a branch. Exactly. Yeah, I think a lot of people get caught up on, like there's this kind of like A to B that could bring you a lot of success in mm-hmm. business. And a lot of people are kind of ride that success curve and they say, well, hey, it's worked for me so yeah. far. Why would I change anything? But 
to get past to get from the B to the C and so on. Correct. You have to learn a new skill to get from B to C, and you have to learn a new skill to get from C to D, exactly. and so on and so on. I know for a lot of realtors, you know, when I started, they were looking at me like, ah, this guy's being lazy. He don't want to do the hard work because they all had to do it, right? They all had to do the cold call and they all had to do all those things. And for me, it's like, no, no, it's, it's not that I'm lazy or any of that. It's just that I, I think this works way better. Like, <laughs> it's way more efficient, and I believe in it. You guys are understanding because you haven't been in that space, but I've been in that space, so I know how people leverage it and how powerful it could be. It so, works. you know, they will share numbers such as, for example, uh, let's say for every, I don't know, every 100 call calls they make, you know, um, let's say per, per week or 200 call calls they make per week, they might get two to three consultations, like actual consultations, right, by somebody who's legit. Um, whereas for me, I could post once and get two or three consultations. You get what I'm saying? Like, yeah. it's, it's, well, I'm gonna, you know, just the, the, the time and just the everything. And then on top of that is you you building a personal brand that could be leveraging so many other things besides just real estate. If tomorrow I decided I don't wanna do real estate no more and I build my personal brand in a way where people really trust, believe me, like me, right? They're gonna buy whatever it is that I wanna sell because they believe in me at the end of the day. I'm, I'm the actual product and service you know not necessarily me being in real estate real know? estate is a great example of that though because like you said there's everyone knows 10 to 15 or more real estate agents they're going to ultimately work with the one that they have the most trust with or Correct. that they believe in the most yep. so if you can build that personal brand even if you're in a crowded space that's what makes you stand out yeah i mean and that, that's so uh, the very first thing they tell you is um call your sphere of influence very first step as soon as you get started, right after you've done your training, they tell you, call your sphere of influence. So now you're supposed to go ahead and call everybody in your phone. You probably haven't talked to in months, maybe years, some of them, right? Some of them you probably went to high school. You haven't talked to them in forever. They want you to call them and let them know that you're a realtor. How do you think that's going to come off? Yeah. Right? I mean, if you're really good at, you know, just bullshit, yeah, you, you could still come off genuine maybe to a degree. You're like, are you checking up with them? You also let them know what you're doing. But I think for most people, I don't think people for stupid. You know, yeah. like a lot of people just think like people are just stupid. They're not gonna like. No, I think people are very smart. They understand intent and your energy. They could they could sense it. Mm -hmm. So for me, it was like, I'm not doing that. Now instead, you want me to stay top of mind, right? That that's the goal as a realtor, stay top of mind. Well, how can I stay top of mind? It's one way. One way is me. I'm gonna call 100 people per day. That's how I stay top of mind. But that's a very annoying way to stay top of mind. Or I could you don't want to be content. top of mind for the wrong reason. Exactly. Or I could create content, and if you follow me already, you're going to see it. I'm not pushing it towards you. You're just going to see it because you follow me already. And if you don't like it, you can if unfollow. You don't like it, exactly, right? So I'm not bothering you. I'm just, creating, I'm just being me. I've had friends tell me they're annoyed with how much they see my content before, like yeah. friends that were that I've had since before I uh -huh. created it, and I say, That's you, fine. you can unfollow me. Like, exactly. I really yeah. don't. I won't take it personally. Correct. Correct. Yeah, it's okay. Because what it is is for them, a lot of times I feel like for, for those who do unfollow, uh, it could be because you're doing something that maybe they wish they had the courage to do, right? It's, there's something in them that's like triggered. Yeah. Because why else would you be triggered to see somebody just creating content? Yeah. You know? Especially when you could just skip it. You could just skip it. You could mute it. There's a lot of things you could do, you know? Uh, which, which does bring us to another good, great topic. If you look at my output, my volume, I think for, for a while, 
um, the, the, the key, and it still probably is for a lot of people, is put out as much as possible. I'm actually, again, I told you, I'm, I'm a contrarian. I do the opposite of what everybody else does. I don't put out that much. I put out like maybe three posts a week versus there's other people putting three posts a day, right? I'm putting three posts a week because what I'm doing is creating almost like a sense of, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, where scarcity. anticipation and scar scarcity, exactly, yeah. right? Where it's like when I do post, it's going to be something valuable. I'm not yeah. just posting to post, right? So it's your intention behind your post. That's what I tell everybody. You Most of you are posting because you're trying to meet this algorithm, right? You're trying to, like, crack the algorithm, go viral, whatever it is. No, your your goal posting this is not for the algorithm. Did you get into this business to please the algorithm? No. You got in this to be able to provide value to your end user, right? So for me, if I'm posting, it has to be something that I think is going to actually be valuable that's going to be shared that people are actually going to like i'm not doing it for the likes i'm doing it am i providing value for you are you going to share this with somebody because it was so valuable and that those are the metrics i'm actually looking at i'm not even looking at the likes i'm looking at the shares i want to dig into this some more because the, i've been hearing this more and more from people who are more experienced in the spaces post less mm -hmm. and more intentionally correct what does your creative process look like so some of it is uh, uh, have certain topics that come to mind, right? Some of it is things I, I, put, I try to put myself in the shoes of my consumer, right? And I try to keep my ear to the streets, like kind of listening to what are their pain points right now? And it changes constantly, right? Um, and then I try to figure out if I was them, what I would find valuable right now. Sometimes it could be a trending topic. Sometimes it could be something that a client mentioned to me that I'd be like, that's actually a really good question. I need to create a video, yeah. right? Um, and then sometimes it could be just me reading an article or reading something that the bulb just kind of goes off. So the moment I think of an idea, I have to write it down and I put it on my list of content stuff that I want to create. Sometimes maybe I'm looking at a video that did well, but I'm like, I could do that better. I could recreate that, but make it, give it my own twist and it's going to perform way better. And I think that mindset that you've chosen to adopt of doing less posting, just mm -hmm. doing it less often, gives you that time and that space to be more intentional purpose. Absolutely. Because, I mean, I, I'm trying to kind of actively escape this kind of hamster wheel yeah. of that trap that you mentioned where you're putting out so much, but you're not catching as much traction with it. I think when I have backed up a little bit, uh -huh. I've seen the content do better. Yeah. Yeah, I think, like I said, that, that's what's been working for me. I try to do it as much as, as I could early on. I was getting burnt out. Because mm -hmm. it, was, it was all by myself in the beginning. Then I had to, like, hire a videographer. And, uh, and it costs a lot of money to do all these things. But I it cost me more time to do it on my own. And it was less effective, meaning that I had bought a drone, flying my own drone. I'm like, this is not, not – I spent all this money to buy this drone. And I'm horrible <laughs> at flying this thing. And it's not coming out the way I want it to. And I'm like, if I'm going to put something out, it has to to feel like high quality. Because that's mm -hmm. how I perceive myself. I don't perceive myself as some like random Joe Blow just throwing shit out there and seeing if it stick. The way I want to present myself to the world is like, no, I'm that guy, you know. So that's when I made the conscious decision to hire somebody, you know. For you, what did that hire look like? 
for the content that, uh, that made sense and allowed you to kind of cover those gaps properly. So th there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of videographers out there. I got approached by a few early on uh, that they saw my where I was going with it and they wanted to be part of it. Right? They're like, oh, yeah, I think I can help you. I see what you're doing. You're doing things way different than we see anybody else do, and we love what you're doing. Uh, he's like, but you just need improvement on the quality of the video. Or you need improvement on the quality of the drone. They even give me a couple of tips. You know, if you do this, then I'm like. Nah, I don't want to have to learn how to fly it. I don't want to have to learn how to edit. I don't want to have to learn all these things, you know. Uh, I'm like, look, I, I could afford to pay for this, at least for the time being. Let, let me just take this um, uh, the leap of faith, right? Because I, what, I, what I ended up doing was I sold one of the, the properties that I had, and I took that money, and I put it aside for my video budget. Big risk, right? I'm selling something that is actually continuing to appreciate to this day, which I feel like I sold too early, but... I needed the money to, to have a side for the for what I was doing. So I believed myself enough where I knew, like, this is going to work. It has to work, mm -hmm. right? And, uh, you know, early on, we didn't see the results, but we kept going. I knew, like, nah, it's just a matter of time. The algorithm is going to train itself. It's going to understand who. Because it went from me pitching to Toro people. I had a lot of Toro mentees and followers. to now I'm going from Toro to real estate. So the algorithm had to retrain itself. Okay, this guy's not talking about cars no more. He's, not, he's mm -hmm. talking about houses now. Yeah, and it's a whole different demographic a lot of times, you know. So it, it took a while, but it eventually, you know, that I think once the algorithm understood that, hey, um, this guy's pushing real estate, and this is the type of people that enjoy the content, that's when we saw that 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 growth. You know? I wanted to talk about monetizing content for a moment too, because I know you had the experience with kind of creating courses around the Turo stuff. What do you think is being done wrong right now for a lot of people that are trying to monetize content? Mm -hmm. And what do you think the right way to do it is? I think the right way to do it is the Hermosi way, right? Where you provide a, a shit ton of value early on, ask for nothing, right? It's uh, I, because what happened is, I think during the COVID era, that was the perfect time to just pitch, 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 pitch. You could just be, you know, buy this, buy that all day long. And because there was so much money, so much stimulus, right, uh, money in the market that people are like, oh, yeah, let me try. They have, they're stuck home anyway, right? So they're like, they're like oh, let me buy this. Let me buy. Like whatever they could spend their money on, they're like, let me go do it. And especially if it's something that's going to make them money, even more so. Anything that involves, you know, obviously wealth, health, you know, those kind of industries, you're going to do well. Um, I think the issue now now, like you were saying, Gen Z is a, a lot smarter, uh, kind of identifying and realizing like, oh, this is bullshit. Sorry, <laughs> no worries. I think the the new generation and just people in general, after being exposed to social media gurus for so long, they they are very more skeptical now about buying from you. Many of them already bought courses and got burned. Mm -hmm. Those courses did not deliver. A whole bunch of fluff. Uh, we've actually bought I've bought courses before. And I'm like, Me too. You know? And I'm like, wow, that's just, that's just spent $1,000? This shit is trash, you know? And nothing pisses me off more than like, look, if you're going to uh, teach something, deliver on it, right? That, that's your brand. I'm going to remember that, hey, this guy is like no good, right? So for me, I think my advice to people selling courses now, you better deliver what it is that you're saying you're going to deliver. You know, don't don't just do it just to sell a course because it's going to hurt you more in the long run. Yeah, you're going to have that short-term gain, but I think long-term it's going to really affect you. 
So right now for me, uh, I think being in real estate, I'm not necessarily trying to sell you in real estate. I'm just showing you the quality of lifestyle you could have here. I'm showing you what what's there to do, why Orlando. I'll show you a little bit of the houses too, you know, but I'm not trying to sell you anything. You're going to come to me eventually when you're ready, you know. I think that's the mindset that works. I'm, I'm not there like, hey, you got to buy it right now. This is the time you're going to miss out. Like, no, I'm not doing that because <laughs> they're tired of that. Yeah. They're tired of that. Every realtor out there is like, buy now, refinance later, buy now. Like, no. Look, I'm going to tell you, like, I'm going to show you the opportunities that are out there, but I'm not going to be salesy about it, you know. The first customer I got in my new venture, kind of coming out of the other business, came from kind of indirectly, but came from my content, funny okay. enough. So I really believe in it and Absolutely. was able to see that early on. It was someone who saw my content, found me on LinkedIn, saw my content on Instagram, found me on LinkedIn, connected. We got on a call. They referred someone else. Wow. So the content, they, I mean, it just, it puts so many seeds out there. It works. And some of them work so there could be things that people that are seeing your video today mm -hmm. that want to work with you in five years correct and that that's very true right because i think a lot of times uh, people who are not used to social media they expect immediate results mm -hmm. right they expect like oh i posted nobody liked it i only got four likes or whatever they expect and a lot of times they also expect a lot of ton of support from their family and friends if you are getting in this business for your family and friends to support you you're in it for the wrong reason you know, um, and I think that even something like that taught me a lot early on. You know, you expect a ton of support from those circles and they're going to support you. But at the same time, they're not going to be sharing your stuff all day long. Right. Yeah. <laughs> they don't want to flood their it's time. It's a full time your, job. Yeah. yeah. They're not they're not your, pro, you know, personal secretary. Yeah. You know? So it's like they're going to show you love when they when they can or when they want to. Um, but you got to be doing it for, like I said, the right reasons. So you got to be willing to stick it out long enough, understanding that it's going to take some time for it to work. And if you could just stick it out, if you truly believe in yourself, if you're confident in what you're doing, I think you'll you'll stick it out all the way through. And that's what I did. And it took me a while to, to see the results. But the moment I saw it working, like you just shared, like I had one consultation, that's all it takes. If you were able to get one consultation out of what you've been doing, that means there's going to be a lot more coming. Exactly. It, it's all kind of just brewing, right? Especially if you get that one from a just a small sample size of what you could be doing correct there it's only up from there and, and then you got to figure out how to replicate what you're doing um because not every content is content that's going to help you grow like early on i was doing um property tours right going to the house show the house the, there's like a million people doing that people are tired of that so i'm like okay let me figure something else out and that's when they, I kind of had that breakthrough moment. Like, oh, okay, this is what I'm going to do. What provides value, whether someone's looking for a house or not. Correct, yeah. Being a resource to go to on all things Orlando. Absolutely. I mean, because, again, every, this, they're, they're bombarded with just uh, video, video tours of properties, right? So it's like, all right, well, let me create something else besides just video tours. I'm going to have some of them there, too. But they're not, it's not going to be 80% of my content. It's going to be only 10%. Mm -hmm. And the rest of it is going to be edutainment, right? So I'm entertaining you. I'm educating you at the same time. I'm providing some sort of value, um, you know, however you do it. For example, my business partner, Ariel, uh, that we had the to tour together, he was actually really good at 
edutainment, but, but with like a funny twist. I don't know if you've seen some of his previous videos early on, right, with the wig and all that. Yeah. And I'm like, man, you, you really got that that pack. That that's not me because I'm not a, I'm not a funny guy. Yeah. But you, that's that's you all day long, and I think like that's an excellent way of mixing comedy with something so serious like taxes. Mm -hmm. So for me, I'm like, all right, well, I'm not. You not, gain new audience that way. People yeah. who might not have been <laughs> exactly. interested until the comedy came into play. Exactly. So for me, I'm like, well, I know I'm not. I'm not a funny guy. I mean, I could be funny here and there, but I'm not that type of humor. So for me, it's like, all right, well, uh, I'm more of a. I always kind of consider myself more of a, like a mentor figure. So I'm like, right, let me provide value in that way, right? Like somebody that you could trust, somebody that knows his stuff, somebody that you could go to for anything. And that's kind of like my methodology with what I'm doing. Going back to just the savviness of the consumer leaning into the actual qualities you have, I think take you a much longer way because people can sense that. Yeah. The authenticity. Correct. And and it and it takes a while, right? Like you were saying earlier. They might have to see your content seven to ten times before they even reach out to you. Right. They say um the most recent thing I've heard is sometimes people need to be exposed to you for six to seven hours before making a purchasing decision. That's yeah. a long time. It is. If you're talking about 30 to, sex, 30 to 60 second videos, right. that could be what, hundreds of videos? Yeah, well, that's why you have long format, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so it's a, uh, that's a whole I, different I don't know game. if it needs to be exactly that. Uh, I think it's, for me, it was more like six to seven touch points, right, where they come across your content at least, they've seen your, your stuff at least six, seven, or eight times. Mm -hmm. And obviously if they're not just like scrolling right past it, they're actually sitting and listening to it, they're building some level of trust or likeness to you. And if, again, if, if it comes down to it where, uh, I've had a lot of, uh, most of my consultations, again, these are people I've never met in my life that don't know me from a can of pain, they only know me through social media. Mm -hmm. And the very first thing they all tell me is uh, two things. One is like, I love your content. Nobody else is doing it like you. That's what separated you. We follow a lot of realtors, but the way you're doing it is completely different. And also, we feel like, based on your tonality, your presentation, the way you're able to condense so much information in such a short period um, of time, and just the way you come off, we feel like we could trust you. So a lot of it too, I think that a lot of people downplay is that it's not just the content itself, it's also you, right? Because you, you're the, the actor, the, the, the creator, the, the person behind all of this. You could have something very valuable to say, but if you're very, like, let's say, I don't know, dorky looking or something, maybe or may not play as well for you, right? I've, I've seen some people who are very, very smart, some of the smartest brides, some of the smartest minds in the room, but you put them in front of a camera and you turn that on, and it just doesn't look right on them for whatever reason, you know? Uh, so I think having that appearance, it's not about what you wear. I just think your overall presentation or your aura is so important. The comfort level. Your comfort level. Are you confident? Are you, like, not? Are you just, like... Because for a lot of people creating content for the first time, it's, it's very nerve-wracking. Mm -hmm. It really is. I mean... <laughs> If you've never done it before, it's, it is. This has been a number of people's first podcast, and it's a completely different mindset coming in, having been on one before, having created content versus not. People, yeah. people just get nervous about it. It causes a different kind of feeling.
Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. And I could tell you very natural at it. You're able to keep the conversation oh, without a problem. So, you know. I've done a lot of episodes. This will be in the high 80s. So really? it, okay. I think it's, I mean, if I go back and look at my first episode, yeah. well, I didn't even air my first ones that I recorded. Okay. I probably recorded five or six that didn't get aired. Can and I then ask I, you why? They were recorded, the first couple were uh-huh. recorded on iPhones. So it was like an iPhone sitting across yeah. the room with another iPhone in the middle. Uh-huh. So the audio quality was terrible. Then for a couple, the lighting was terrible where like you could barely see me. I probably should have posted them anyway. You should have. Because then I could look back and see even more of a difference. But for me, it was there was like a little bit of a threshold I felt like I had to get past first. Oh, okay. But I wish I wouldn't have because if you can get over that threshold immediately, you only have up to go from there. One of my top performing videos was actually not even that clear. It was very grainy. It was done through an iPhone. It had uh, close to a million views. So, I, I, again, when you're getting started, you're going to start off. Nobody's expecting you to have the top equipment, right? You just got to get started. And I think it's better to fail early when there's not enough eyeballs on you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Versus, uh, you know, using that equipment much later in life, right? Much later or, or fucking up much later. So I think even with something as simple as going live on Instagram or TikTok or whatever it might be, a lot of people, like, get so um, so discouraged when they only see one person on there mm-hmm. <laughs> or two people. And and I tell them, like, listen, it's better that way. Trust yeah. me. Because your first few tries are going to be horrible. And you don't want At everybody looking. At least no looking. one's seeing you look exactly. terrible. Exactly. And it, yeah. it allows you to practice. So when you do get a 1,000 people tuning in or more, now you, you know, you've had your, your, your practice. You've, you've been there. You've done that. Exactly. Yeah, and it really – any kind of comfort level that I may have developed over the time has only come from doing it for hours and hours and hours. I've got probably hundreds of hours behind a camera now just from doing all of this through being on others, hosting this one, creating content. And it just, it only goes away with doing it through a lot of times, a lot of reps. Absolutely. But I I could tell, like I said, just by you doing your interview, uh, you're a great listener, great interviewer, able to ask all the right questions to get your person comfortable and talking and leading the conversation wherever it is that you're trying to go to, you know. Thank you. That's very important. That's it. Like I've said, because I've, I've had interviews or just chats with other people where it's like they have a, a certain idea what they want to ask, but then they, they kind of get, you know, because even for me, sometimes it's kind of going and going and going, and you're able to kind of, right, let me bring it back to some of the questions I'm really trying to ask. The way for anyone listening who might be considering getting into any kind of interview format, I think the skill you have to develop is the ability to to have an idea of things you would like to cover, and that lives as almost the secondary layer in the back of your mind. But the first layer is being present in the conversation because no matter what you want to say or what point you want to get to, if it's not natural and it doesn't make sense, that shouldn't be your next line of conversation. Your next line of conversation should be whatever makes sense. Yeah. And if naturally you get to the place you'd like to, great. But if not, then you're missing out on something great that you could cover that you didn't even know. That is true. I think it's a, a big part of that is because we we listen to respond, right? So as somebody's talking, we're already formulating what we're going to say versus just like actually listening to where they're going with it and then kind of when it's our turn to talk, just, you know, answering it accordingly. Yeah, I almost have this like, this like, like the goalpost almost moves as I'm listening to someone. Yeah. It's like, I might develop something I'd like to say, yeah. but then I hear something that they say and I'm like, 
Well, actually, it's yeah. here. <laughs> exactly. Actually, it's here. Yep, absolutely. I think that's the only way to do it. Yeah, it is. It is. It's uh, like I said, it's it's definitely a skill that you got to develop. I know early on for me it was more like, because uh, I'm I'm kind of grew up in a household was very um, conflictive. You know, you always kind of have an answer ready. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I, I didn't learn to listen until much later in life. I kind of learned to respond. So if you're saying something, I already have something I'm going to like, you know, to say. But yeah. Listening is such a valuable skill and no matter what you're doing, because if you take a, if you take the time to listen, you learn. Absolutely. And the more you learn and the more you're observant, mm -hmm. the more you can level yourself up and and the more you can bring knowledge cross industry, kind of in the way that you've been able to do, if you're able to listen and observe rather than just putting your ideas out there, you can collect those ideas and use them for later. That's true. I, and I'm a big believer that um, I think everyone, no matter their background, their socioeconomics, any of that, has something important that you can learn from them. A lot of times uh, I've come across friends that if they feel like you're not maybe smart enough or you don't have a certain status, they won't have a conversation with that person. I will. I will have a conversation with that person because I feel like deep down, everybody has something you can learn from. It might not be about money and wealth, but it could be about other. There's so many different scoreboards in life. We focus so much on just the money, the wealth piece, that we forget like, well, there's health, there's relationships, there's a... You know, so many other things. There's a spiritual element. There's there's so much, you know. And that's why I feel like every person you come across, uh, there's something that you can learn there. I love – I wrote that down. I love that there's so many different scoreboards in life point because I think you're so right. I mean, you could – you could learn something from a homeless person on the street about Absolutely. how they got there, what they might have done different, and you could learn something from – a, a hedge fund advisor in Wall Street mm -hmm. about how to make money. You can learn something from anyone. So you can learn somebody who was bankrupt. Yeah, right. There, there's a lesson in everything. It's just that that person didn't succeed, but they could tell you what their failures are, so you could avoid them. It's you all know? just about asking the right questions. Because I think a lot of times we just focus on the people who are succeeding at something to learn from them. I mean, yes, you should, but some of those people may not have confronted certain things that the person that did go bankrupt or did lose his family did lose, you know. Again, a lot of it could be time, it could be luck. There's so many different variables in life of why people succeed and some others don't. That I think a lot of times we just kind of like look at that shiny object, like, oh my God, but not don't realize like, well, wait a minute, what if that person burnt a whole bunch of people to get there? Like you don't know the true story behind it, right? So. Or what if they really did just get insanely lucky? Yeah, like you, you never, never know, know, you know? And uh, to me, like I said, I don't believe in um, even that whole concept of being self-made. I, I don't think anybody is self-made. Everybody had some sort of influence. I don't think I'm self-made. I don't think anybody is self-made, you know, to be honest with you. I think everybody has some sort of influence in your life that got you to where you are right now. Un unless you grew up in a cave all by yourself <laughs> and you became a billionaire, <laughs> then yes, you're self-made. But if you had any Maybe sort you of had some specialized knowledge yeah. that allowed you to break into the caving industry <laughs> uh, like uh, i mean other than that like how can you say that you're self-made you so you're saying your parents didn't teach you anything they didn't provide anything for you or your friend or your uh maybe your first boss i feel like you know people just want to because in the u.s especially that whole concept of individualism and, and just being successful 
is kind of taken the wrong way where people have to almost pretend that they are self-made and they're truly not. Yeah, I think so too. And I think I, I totally agree with that point of no one being self-made. And I, it reminds me of something I always think about that I think applies to entrepreneurship, but also mm-hmm. entrepreneurship, kind of any type yeah. of career pursuit is that any, no matter who you are, it doesn't matter what life stage or what background you have at least a skill or an interest that you're either more skilled in than the average person or more interested in than the average person. And that's a leverage point. Rule number one in entrepreneurship is using what you've got and it, and you have either that skill or that interest. And if you're lucky enough to have both, that's even even, better. That's even better. I think for a lot of people, um, especially in the, in the newer generation, uh, they don't know, what that skill is. Oh, they're per- everybody's looking for purpose, passion, all these things, right? All these keywords. Um, I listened to somebody, um, a friend of a friend, who said this at uh, one of the masterminds. He mentioned that God places a almost like a Pandora's box inside of you, right? That contains your your skills, your purpose, all those things. But He does not give you the key, and the key is to be discovered, right, through experiences. Maybe something that somebody says, maybe something that somebody does that unlocks that box in you and then you finally discover your true purpose or your true, you know, whatever it is that you, you want to do in life, you know. Have you had a moment like that before? Um, I've had. I've had. A, I really did have. I think uh, for a long time I tried to figure out well, what, what is my purpose. And um, I went to a uh, Tony Robbins event in uh, West Palm Beach. It was the uh, Unleash Your Power Within. And I went there for my wife because my wife is a life coach. And, you know, we figured we went for her birthday. We figured it would be a good idea for her. She gets to learn. We were able to write it off, right, tax yeah. write-off, et cetera. But for me, I was never a big Tony Robbins, um, you know, person. Because I always thought, like, oh, like jumping and what the fuck, you know? <laughs> right? And then I go there, and out of the whole group, I'm probably the only one who had the, the breakthrough. And I'm like, get the fuck out of here. Wow. Right? You know, um, it's three days, and then I had a breakthrough because he goes through so many different, like, scenarios from um, you kind of confronting that inner child or that, you know, past, present, and future scenarios, kind of like with Scrooge, you know, how the holy kind of the, the ghost came and took him through those. Uh, and it makes you kind of analyze why you're doing what you're doing. You know, what's been the, the, the driving factor behind what you're doing? So you get to confront that and to a certain degree, right? Because again, you're in large groups. It's not like you're a one-on-one. Um, but for me, it allowed me to kind of think deeper. And I think that's around the same time that um, I decided to pursue real estate. I had just got finished with Toro, and I was trying to figure out what's the next step. And uh, it kind of came full circle, right? Started in 2008 during the crash. I'm getting into it <laughs> around the, when the economy's not doing so well. Um, and uh, the reason behind it was I love serving people. I love having a positive impact. And I feel like buying a house, for most people, if it's their very first home, that's the largest purchase they will ever make and the most probably impactful or memorable event in their life. You know? Um, I know, I mean, I still remember my very first home, my fourth home now, but it's it's something that you're always going to remember. Right? Like your first girlfriend, first boyfriend, anything that's a first, people remember. So I feel like that's one way to have impact. And to also protect, I think, uh, consumers' interests because I'm really big on that. So I want to make sure that they are getting a good deal. Um, and 
just being able to guide them through the whole process. And you took that interest that you had and I would imagine you discovered skills along the way that played into that. I think a lot of times for someone who might not feel like they immediately have skills to leverage in something, an interest can lead you to discovering skills that supplement that interest or vice versa. When I got into doing the podcasting, I had no interviewing skills or anything, but I had an interest in it. I went on another one for something I was doing and I just had this lightning bolt moment where I was like, I just enjoyed doing that. That was fun. But even though you may have not had interviewing skills, you already had some level of people skills, right? And that's what I discovered along the way. Because I, mean, I can tell you by, by your presence, in. even meeting you outside, very welcoming and so forth. Uh, so you already have that level of people skills. The interviewing is just an extra thing you had to add to your tool belt, you know? And then along the way, you start to discover that things you didn't even realize were skills or experiences that you didn't realize built no. experience play into your next thing correct you you're i like to uh i like to think of people and myself and anyone else i think people are appreciating assets yeah. if you do it right Absolutely. everyone is an well everyone is an asset and assets either appreciate or depreciate and i think if you're doing things right then you as a person are an appreciating asset correct and if you figure out ways to appreciate your asset more and more you unlock new things absolutely and and again i I don't know if you're spiritual or not but for me um, that's a big part a big driving uh, factor to what i'm doing Um, it's just kind of having faith being led by faith um, and and knowing that whatever it is that i'm doing is it is it pleasing god or not like right so any any business practice anything that i'm doing i want to make sure that i'm not doing something shady or something just to make a quick buck or sell a quick course right <laughs> so you were asking me earlier i remember you asked me uh before we started the interview like are you guys still doing torah are you still pushing the torah and i said absolutely not how can i feel comfortable pushing something knowing that it's not performing but if you if you google right now if you pull it up any um social media gurus on tour they're still pushing it it makes you almost question their um like why yeah why are you doing so you you're willing to put people in distress you wouldn't put people under financial distress just to make a quick buck i think it's your responsibility to know whether things are performing if you're in the industry too there, I think it's there is okay so yeah you have the buyer beware right mm-hmm. okay, buyer beware um but at the same time it's like yeah buyer beware however if you are almost kind of like the universities that tricked us right with these projections and all that back then we still hold them accountable now, right? We, we still hate them for it. We're like, yo, you know, what you did was not okay, right? I think it's the same concept with these online gurus now, where it's like maybe there were a, a couple good ones, but there were so many people that saw a quick path to money that everybody became a guru overnight. They Google some shit, and next thing you know, they have a course. And it's like, okay, wait, wait, what is your background exactly? Have you done this? When we started our Toro course, we made sure, for one, we used all of our business. We leveraged all of our business uh, acumen, right? Everything that we knew, that we learned in school, and so forth, and we actually did it. And we even created formulas and exercise. Like we made sure that before we go out into the marketplace and and provide this, that it's the best thing out there. We even studied our competitors. We bought all their courses. That's smart. Let, let's see how how, the, and we realized like, wait a minute, this shit is garbage. Like what? 
they, they're charging how much? And we were charging a third at the time. And we had a couple mentees that bought our course and had bought a couple courses before ours. They like they told us, uh, even on the review, they're like, I learned more in the first 10 minutes of your course, and your, our course is obviously several hours long, than we did buying all these other courses. And that felt good. That, that's when I knew, I'm like, okay, this yeah. is, because that's what we wanted to make sure that we are actually providing value. And of course, in the very beginning, because this is the very first time we created a course, we like, you have that, um, what's that fear? The, um, where you feel like you're not good enough or uh, imposter, imposter syndrome. syndrome. Yeah. You, you have that sense of imposter syndrome at that moment because you've never done it before. So when we put it out there like, well, is this good enough? But at the same time, we knew it was good enough because <laughs> we bought the other courses and they were not, it was all fluff. So I love that idea because I've held off on the idea. I have like a free one that I'll send to people if they want to yeah. just like get their toes wet with like the ideas of this stuff. But I've held off on ever doing like a paid one because I just, I feel like I have a little bit of that imposter syndrome. I think gauging gauging it by getting similar courses and seeing if you feel like you could do like you could really really outperform that. I think that's a great move. Yeah, I mean, I think any business person does that, right? You kind of look at the competition. I mean, it's the first thing they teach you in business school, kind of mm -hmm. right? Explore, kind of go out there and look at your competition, strength, weaknesses, and all that, right? The SWAT. Um, so for us, yeah, we, we did do that. Uh, we wanted to make sure that what we provide was better than everybody else and at a cheaper price point. Sometimes that could hurt you though, because people might look at, they might associate it with it's cheaper, maybe it's not as good. Mm -hmm. So then we had to eventually almost raise the price. And we realized that when we did raise the price to, uh, I think we're charging 997 at that point, th there was a higher uh, retention or complete, not retention, completion rate of the course. Yeah, because people value it more. Yeah, when people pay, they pay attention, mm -hmm. right? So. <laughs> You know, we, we thought like we were doing people a favor by charging less. It was actually the opposite effect. When people were, were getting paid, we were charging less because it was, it was I think we we're charging only like three, four hundred bucks, right? People didn't take it as serious. They're like, oh, I'll, I'll get to it when I get to it. But when you charge a thousand, then fifteen hundred, we were charging at one point. We started seeing that that completion rate kept going up and up and up. And I'm like, oh wow, like I never thought that this would be the effect of of doing that. I bought a course a couple maybe three weeks ago now for 150 bucks. I've spent like two minutes on it. Okay. It's it's the same thing. It's yeah. like, I guess I probably don't value it that much. You don't value, yeah. It's, I bought like a, a course on like how to, how to script things better, mm -hmm. how to like, how to write for social media. And I've, I haven't gotten more than like a few minutes into it because it was 150 bucks. That's, but if you paid 1500, like, I would have finished minute. it by now. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Wait a minute. Like, you know, that's a lot of money, right? So on the other hand, I, I'm, paid for a consultant recently, a couple uh -huh. thousand for someone to set up a particular system in my business. And I'm like all over it because I've got skin in the game. Yeah. Yeah. So to me, I, I don't think the, the price should be an issue, right? Like uh, what, what you're charging for the course as long as you're delivering. We've paid uh, $20,000 for masterminds where they were like, we thought they were going to be good because that, that presentation in the beginning was amazing. But then you go through and you're like, this is like garbage. Like, I want a refund. Like, I don't, I don't, like, this is not what, you know, this is not $20,000 worth, you know. So there's that kind of like that fine line between being a marketer, but also delivering on, you know, what you're actually marketing.
So you yeah. have to have both. I think to you have to have both, and I think that you spend way too much effort on the marketing if the product delivery is not in place. Yeah, because you have to do so much marketing to get a new customer because you don't have any word of mouth or referral Absolutely. power working for you. But at the same time, um, I think that even if, if, if your stuff is not the best, people are gonna continue buying because you build a brand, mm -hmm. right? That's the power of marketing. There's a lot of geniuses out there. There's a lot of businesses that have maybe the best food or the best this, the best that, but they just suck at marketing and nobody ever finds out about them, mm -hmm. you know? Then you have somebody with great marketing, maybe like an okay product, and they're thriving. And why? Because the marketing, because they built the brand behind it. Mm -hmm. You know, how many times have you been back to a place where you're like, ah, it's okay, but you just keep going back. Why is that? Have you so thought about that? Top of mind. Top of mind, yeah. Maybe convenience, maybe it could be a lot of things, right? But you keep going back for a reason. Mm -hmm. You don't just not, you don't just say like, I'm never going back. There's, there's something there. Even though their food is average or whatever it might be, you keep going back. That's I think true. the same thing could be said for, uh, you know, social media marketing, online marketing, so. We've done an hour 45, believe it or oh, not. Wow. <laughs> it absolutely flew by. Is there anything else that you would like to share with the audience? Um, I think going back to your, your uh, original thing about uh, doing, like selling something, like, like Toro or anything like that, I would say um, the moment that you feel um, that you're selling, you're selling like snake oil, you know, if you are uh, really walking with God or walking by faith and so forth, um, that's when you gotta know when to shut it down. I've heard something recently, I was talking to somebody, they were talking about, uh, in marketing, we're talking about manipulation and persuasion. Do you, do you know the difference between the two? Do you have kind of like, if I tell you, hey, you know, yeah, I feel like the content you put now sounds very manipulative versus something persuasive. Do you understand what I'm trying to say? With I that? do. Could you give an example though to clarify? So something manipulative, you don't care for my best interest. Right. You just care about selling what you want to sell. You might not even be delivering. You you're basically doing just enough to get my money. Like you you're not. You might deliver. You might not deliver. That doesn't even come to to mind. Your job is like, how can I manipulate this person into buying this thing here? Regardless of whether it provides value or not. Yeah. Right? Whereas persuasive is you're still leveraging marketing or whatever it is that you're doing, but you actually do have, it's almost like a win-win situation. So mm -hmm. ma manipulation, it's a win-lose. Yeah. Whereas persuasion is more like a win-win situation to, to, to a certain degree, right? Or as much as possible. Yeah, it's like the um, the used car salesman, like, is the classic, like, kind of trope of the manipulative, manipulative example where yeah. they come at you with everything in the book to yeah. kind of force scarcity and, and force you into a decision. And you, I think the, the litmus test for this is if you, um, if you have buyer's regret after buying after, something, yeah. then you got manipulated. I, th I think so. Either that or you were just very gung-ho to begin with about whatever it is that you were trying to, to do, right? And maybe you're not willing to put the value into it to in, make it in, work. Into it, yeah, because th there's times where I bought stuff and definitely wasn't manipul I wasn't manipulated into buying it. It was more so buyer's remorse because it was what we called a um, 
the word is escaping right now, but when you make a purchase, um, just out of the moment, what, is, what do we call that? That's, um, you know what I'm it's talking about. on the tip about. of my tongue, too. Yeah, like yeah, it's just escaping me right now, but. An impulse. Impulse. Impulse, yeah, impulse, impulse purchase, purchase, yeah. Right, so, yeah, if you make an impulse purchase, more than likely you may have some sort of uh, level of buyer's remorse because you, you go back home and you analyze, like, did I really need this? Why the hell did I buy this? Yeah. You know? So for me, uh, anytime it comes down to a big purchase, anything over $1,000, uh, I won't buy it right there and there. I will always be like, all right, let me, let me go home. Let me think about this. Do I really need this? Do I need that? If it, the answer is no, if I still want it by the next day, then I'm buying. Yeah. But if I don't need it by the next day, I'm already past it. So That's a good way to do it. Yeah. Anything else you'd like to share? Um, nothing else. I think for those who are going through tough times right now in the market, uh, regardless of what industry you're in, I would say um, try to stick it through. Try to try to get through if you can, you know. And for those who are really hurting, I had a conversation with somebody recently uh, that went and filed bankruptcy, and uh, they were kind of explaining the process to me and everything else, and I'm like, hmm. Because we, we have this negative connotation with bankruptcy. But then you look at billionaires that file bankruptcies all the time, right? They leverage that. to. The, but I think there's a certain level of pride and ego where for, I feel like for some business owners, you want to, like, sink with the ship rather than realizing, like, hey, I think it's time to let go of this thing and start something else. Yeah. You know? So I think for those people, really assess your situation. Is it really worth sinking with the ship or is it time to, to jump ship? You know? There's nothing wrong with... There's a reason why those those laws are in place, and millionaires leverage them all the time. Why shouldn't you? So, thank you for coming on. This has been quite the conversation, Likewise. longer than most of them because we we went deep on yeah. it. That was awesome. <laughs> There's a lot of different topics. I and uh, where can people find you? Uh, so I'm on on uh, Instagram at uh, Daniel Zoga, and I'm also on TikTok at uh, Real Estate Saint on TikTok. So awesome, and that's a podcast. <laughs>